I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Here you go. 99. That's the nothing personal word of the day. It's the nothing personal number of the day. 99 is uh, Wayne Gretzky's number. Wayne Gretzky was in the news this weekend, somehow saying, I think the NHL will be playing this summer. It wasn't based on anything other than desire, hope, prayer. I actually hope it does happen. I want to see sports back safely. Wayne Gretzky, the GOAT, right? Is there any is there any question that when you're thinking about some of the greatest players in each sport, we go hockey, it's Gretzky. People say Lemieux, maybe Sidney Crosby, maybe Bobby Orr, maybe Gordie Howe. No, it's Wayne Gretzky, period, hard stop. It was 21 years ago this past Saturday. April 18th, 1999 was Wayne Gretzky's last game. That is 21 years ago. He had his last game at the Garden. He actually finished his career, you know this, as a New York Ranger. I was lucky enough to be at that game. And I was a sort of a hockey fan growing up. Much bigger Nick fan, but always, also a Ranger fan. It, my order was Knicks, 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 then Giants, New York Giants, then Yankees, then Rangers. But I loved going to hockey games. Didn't much like watching them on TV. I got invited to that game by a a friend of mine, a really good friend of mine, best friend. And we knew that we were watching history. And when you get a chance to see the greatest of all time, if you get a chance to see Tom Brady, you go see Tom Brady. When you get a chance to see Wayne Gretzky, you see Wayne Gretzky. It was a love fest, that final game. I remember buying a t-shirt and, uh, I was not I was not yet in baseball. I started in baseball in December of 1999, but in April of 99, I was at Morgan Stanley and I just remember thinking to myself, how am I ever going to match the emotion of a game where the outcome didn't matter, the Penguins beat the Rangers in overtime that day, where you just say to yourself, that man will never lace up skates in a game that counts again. And when you're talking about the GOAT and you think about how lucky we are to live in an era when you can watch the greatest of all time, because sometimes the greatest of all time, uh, one could argue that Babe Ruth is the greatest baseball player of all time or Ted Williams was the greatest left-handed hitter of all time, and I didn't get to see them play. I could say that I enjoyed watching Vladimir Guerrero or Ken Griffey Jr. or so many other Hall of Famers. But the truth is there's nothing, no one like Wayne Gretzky, except... Michael Jordan. Yes, I found a segue. You knew I'd find a segue to The Last Dance. Who's not watching The Last Dance? The documentary that was on ESPN, first two of 10 parts for the next five Mondays, today and four Mondays after this, we are going to talk about the episodes of The Last Dance because it's fascinating to me. And I wanna talk generally about it and then I wanna get into some very specific stories 
and instances and try to provide you with some clarity around some issues that I don't think the documentary properly has gone into yet. Now, there's eight episodes left, so it's very rare. This is like reviewing a movie after watching, basically, we've seen 20% of the movie. So a two-hour movie, we've watched basically, you know, 24 minutes of it. That's 20% of a 120-minute movie. I just did that math very quickly. How do you know after 24 minutes? How about a 200-page book? Are you going to review a 200-page book after 40 pages and say, oh, I know what's happening? So I don't love that we're reviewing Last Dance. So I'm not reviewing Last Dance. What I'm reviewing for you today is the first two episodes. And I want to give you my general reaction, talk about why I'm so fascinated by this and why it has captured the attention of the country, if not the world. To start with, we have no live sports. That's what everyone is saying. Well, that is not why people are fascinated with The Last Dance. If this had come out in the middle of the NBA Finals as planned, they were gonna show it on off days, people would have still watched it. And the reason is that you have an opportunity, so we thought, to see deep inside what was likely the greatest dynasty in the history of basketball. Now people fight me and say the Celtics when Bill Russell won, I think 10 or 11 rings, or the Miami Heat with LeBron James, or the Golden State Warriors with Steph Curry, maybe even the Spurs. You could talk about all sorts of great teams, who's the team of generation. But when you talk about the Chicago Bulls and what they did with Michael Jordan, there is no discussion. And what I'm hoping the documentary is able to do is explained to people who were not old enough to understand what they were watching, were too young to actually be watching, or maybe were not even alive. Believe it or not, if you are 13 years old, strike that, if you are 23 years old, that's unbelievable. I had not done the math right. I have been since last night, I've got corona brain, that's not a word of the day, but it's just total atrophy. Since last night, physical and psychological atrophy, since last night, I've been thinking that 13-year-olds were not alive to watch Michael Jordan try to win his sixth title in eight years. They weren't alive to know that he left basketball under very mysterious circumstances in the middle of that six-run title run eight-year title run, six and eight years. But it turns out it's 23 years. So think about it. You could be a senior in college. You could be out of college. You could be in graduate school. You were not alive when Michael Jordan was playing. So for me, it's the equivalent of basketball players in the 60s who I look at as ancient relics. They can't be the greatest of all time. I never watched them play. The greatest of all time have to be people who I saw, who I felt were the greatest but sometimes greatness transcends generations. Michael Jordan is that. There's no discussion. I'm lucky enough that I got to watch LeBron James up close. I got to watch Michael Jordan up close many, many, many times. Forget the fact that Jordan has more titles. That's not even the most relevant part. Michael Jordan's ability to single-handedly destroy other players and other teams is the stuff that legends are made of. He was able to psychologically and physically beat teams before they'd even walk onto the court. One of the interesting parts in the documentary is when he golfed with Danny Ainge, 
in between, <clears throat> back before they'd won their first title. This was during a 1986 first round playoff series. He scored 59 points or 49 points in game one. He then plays golf with Danny Ainge in the, during the off day, comes back, doesn't play well, tells Ainge, you better tell DJ to look out. Dennis Johnson, I think he talked about DJ, whoever he was talking about. By the way, those Celtic teams were insane. I think they won the title in 86. They were just unbeatable. But Jordan then put, on, put up 63 points. Jordan had the ability to do what he wanted when he wanted to. You knew when you were playing him, you were going to lose. I've talked to you on Nothing Personal about the double nickel game. His first game back wearing number 45 after his two-year baseball hiatus when he beat the Knicks in the garden with double nickel. First time playing in the garden after his hiatus. And the game ended on a quick pass to Bill Wennington, who was, by the way, made an appearance early on in the documentary. How great to see some of the old guys. But how did this happen? How did they have this much footage? How did they have this much original footage? How did they know to get behind the scenes of this sixth and final title run? Well, the setup was perfect. For those who don't remember, they set it up perfectly. The offseason made any Marlins offseason or any other offseason of your team where you think there is dysfunction, any insanity, the offseason after the Bulls won their fifth title, the offseason which started at the post-game press conference and it appeared on the documentary, was the craziest offseason I've ever seen a team have. And I had not been in sports yet. But living through that offseason, I remember thinking, I can't believe the Bulls are going through this. I, I, I don't, my hatred for the Bulls was deep. My respect for the Bulls was deep. My jealousy of the Bulls was deep. But I remember thinking, as crazy as the Knicks are, and this is before I was in, ever in baseball, before I was ever in a front office, I not yet started year one of 18 years. I was thinking, how is it that a GM, Jerry Krause, who I had a long history with already back in 1997, how would he announce that Phil Jackson is in his last season before it even starts? How would Michael Jordan be forced to give an interview post winning a title and say the words, I will only play for Phil Jackson? How did it get this way with the Bulls? The Bulls were smart enough to let camera crews in, give full access. You saw that on Last Dance. That's the only way we have this documentary is they got full access. And what is so brilliant about that is I know what goes into the decision to give a team full access, a video team, producers, directors, camera people. The Marlins did it in 2012 with a show called The Franchise. It was a CBS Showtime show called The Franchise, and we gave them full access, and it was painful. It was painful, the process, it was painful to watch after it happened. It was painful, and you're just not seeing shows like this anymore. No matter what hard knocks what they tell you hard knocks is, no matter what the franchise used to be, the type of access that is required to make a real documentary hurts a team. And I never believed it. I was completely in favor of a documentary. I was fine with cameras being everywhere. Our players were unhappy. Our executives were unhappy. Our owner was convinced to be somewhat happy, but it turned out not to work out. And I think that he would look back and say that it was a mistake. I look back and say that the only mistake was in the signings we made and the managerial choices we had. But the reality is when cameras are with you, think about this. When I, uh, just a quick survivor side note, 
when you watch Survivor and it looks like a player's alone or you're watching Naked and Afraid and you think, wow, they must be Naked and Afraid, you know there's camera people and sound people. There's people everywhere. And one of the things I said when applying to Survivor and being interviewed is I said, they said, is there any problem, any issues you may have that would stop you from competing? And I said, yeah, I'm, a, I'm scared of the dark and I'm scared of being alone. So if I'm gonna be alone on an island, then I'm not, I'm not gonna play. And they said, listen, how do you think we're capturing what you do? And it never occurred to me, oh yeah, they're cameras. Oh, there's people holding the cameras. How are they hearing me? Ah, boom mics. Or you're mic'd up. It all is making sense. So when we're getting access to what's going on in the locker room, when you're hearing Michael Jordan say the things about Jerry Krause that he was saying or, the, or what he was saying during a practice to Derek Harper or Tony Kukoc, the way he was showing leadership by bullying almost, there are cameras right there. It must have been super uncomfortable for Phil Jackson because he's a much more private guy, super uncomfortable for Jerry Krause, as we've seen. And believe it or not, super uncomfortable for even players with the biggest egos who have thoughts of wanting to be movie stars. So there's a lot of minuses to this documentary and allowing this documentary. And the pluses, of course, are, hey, we get to see it. So what are the takeaways? I'm going to try to go in some sort of temporal order. And one of the things that uh, happened immediately for me is I noticed Jordan when he got hurt. And I remember that injury. And uh, I remember not thinking much of the injury because back in those days, the biggest issue for the Knicks was not the Bulls. The Bulls were not a true problem. It was the Celtics and it was um, the Pistons. It really was not, didn't matter. So Jordan misses all those games. He comes back. I did not know until yesterday, never knew that he was rehabbing on his own at the University of North Carolina. He was playing games, as he said, of one-on-one, -on -one, then two-on-two, three-on-three, four-on-four, five-on-five, and Jerry Krause and Jerry Reinsdorf did not know it. That is incredible to me. The way it works with injured players and their rehab is that we're in charge, period. End of sentence. If we have to negotiate with the agent, we're not gonna do it. When Scott Boris wants to have a say into what Jose Fernandez's rehab is gonna be from Tommy John, or what Jose Fernandez's pitch count is gonna be, or how it's gonna work when he comes back on an innings limit, he has zero say. Any limit that's put by a team to a player is done by the team. And if the player doesn't like it, there's nothing the player can do. If we're playing the player too long and the player wants to walk off the field, that's his right, and then we don't have to pay him. We can suspend him. If a player wants to pitch more, he has no right to stay in the game, we have the right to take him out of the game. If he wants to pitch less, we have the right to keep him in the game. So if we ever had a player who was doing rehab without us knowing, in this day and age, I don't believe that could ever happen. Let's say back in the 80s, no social media, is there any scenario under which I believe that the Jerry's, Reinsdorf and Kraus, had did not know that Jordan was in North Carolina? Well, back then, no cell phones, no Instagram, no Twitter. You don't know where people are. And it's only landlines. So imagine what happened when you tried to reach someone. Right now, we are in an era of immediate gratification. If I want to reach one of our executives back in the day, post cell phone, you better pick up. I don't care if it's Christmas, New Year's, or Hanukkah, pick up the phone. 
If I want to reach someone, if someone wants to reach me, I'm going to be available. Does it cause an addiction? It does. I agree. I'm addicted to the phone. And it's got getting worse, not better, with the advent of social media. Back then, you could disappear. There's nobody taking pictures of the five-on-five five games. Now, do you think, let me just give you an example. Steph Curry, do you think during his rehab from his broken hand, I think he broke his hand, I could be wrong. He broke something this season. Do you think he could have played a game of five-on-five five in a gym and had no record of it? Nobody would have known? Steve Kerr wouldn't have known? It's impossible. It's almost negligent of the Jerry's today not to have known, but back then, that's how it goes. But the way they then found out, because he was in game shape when he came back, that would have made me insane because Michael Jordan was our superstar. We knew he was the best player in the league before he had won even a title or advanced far in the playoffs. We could not give him that level of control because it would have been creating a Frankenstein that we would not have been able to hold down. Why do we need to hold down Michael Jordan? Why was there such a problem with Jerry Krause and Michael Jordan? The reason is that Jerry Krause was aware that Michael Jordan was the best player, but if you don't have a team, you can't win. Michael Jordan didn't win a title until 1991. He was drafted in 84, played in 85. Jordan plus Sleepy, Dopey, and Sneezy, they're not going to win. Now, they can have unbelievable individual games. They can even make the playoffs as an eighth seed. They can even take Boston and have great games, take them to overtime like you did in that 63-point game. But at the end of the day, you're not going to make it all the way through June or what now will be July or August or September or October, actually. You can't make it through and win the NBA Finals. I can't believe he rehabbed by himself. So that was my first takeaway. Never going to happen today. Number two, three. I don't know what number we're at. Scotty Pippen. So I've had a chance to meet Scotty, and Scotty is a, um, I've always uh, watched him as a player. He is a, uh, a perfect compliment. Let me just explain how perfect this is. In basketball, you can have a player and a group of players get together. We've seen it with the big three, we call it. You get three good players, you can win a title if they're the three best. Michael Jordan needed people around him, and Jerry Krause knew and was smart enough to know that he needed Scottie Pippen and then needed to trade Bill Cartwright to get Bill Cartwright from the Knicks to give us Charles Oakley. We didn't need Cartwright. We had Cartwright and Ewing. They didn't need Pippen and Oakley. They needed a center. They got Cartwright. They needed Pippen. All of a sudden, they can then win a title. But Scottie Pippen was a very complicated character off and on the court, and you got to know him a little bit I didn't realize he came from such a big family. I knew he played for Central Arkansas. I didn't know what it was or where it was. I didn't realize one of his siblings plus his father had had were in wheelchairs. I didn't realize the financial situation he was in. What I did know about Scottie Pippen is that he was an absolute baby. And how do I know this? Because way back in 1994, something happened that I will never forget. And I thought about through my entire career. In 1993, the Bulls won the title. Michael Jordan then retired under very suspicious circumstances, as we all know, went to play baseball. And the Bulls then continued on with Scottie Pippen as their leader, along with Tony Kukoc as the second best player on the team. 
1994. The Knicks were getting better. They lost in the conference either semis or finals to the to the Bulls. I think it was the semis in 93. I think that could have been the Charles Smith year when he went up 50 times, couldn't go up hard and dunk the ball. If you're an old Knicks fan, you know this, but I'm not going to get into it now. I'm too upset. Still, 27 years later, still. So Pip is the leader. They're playing the Knicks in the Eastern Conference semifinals, 1994. The Bulls are up two games to zero, or the Knicks are up two games to zero, I'm sorry. And it's game three, and the Bulls are tie game, timeout. Phil Jackson is calling a play, and I'm watching the game, and Scottie Pippen's not paying attention. And the camera is showing this game was played in Chicago, and Scottie Pippen's not paying attention. And I'm thinking to myself, and I remember this happening, and it was, it was 1994, I remember as though it were yesterday. Scottie Pippen won't go in the game. The play starts, and Scottie Pippen's on the bench. There's some sort of scuffle going on. Play resumes. Tony Kukoc takes the shot, wins the game. The Knicks end up winning that series and going on to the finals and beating Indiana in seven games, and then losing to the... Akeem Olajuwon, the number one pick in 1984 in the finals of 1994. Scottie Pippen did not go in the game when he was the leader of the team because the play was not called for him. That's a leader? You wonder why the Bulls couldn't win without Jordan? A, Jordan's the best player ever. B, Scottie Pippen's not a leader. He was a sidekick. Is he a top 50 NBA player? If they had to do top 50 again today, he's not. Was he the perfect compliment? The perfect compliment to Michael Jordan, yes. He couldn't take it. But what did we learn even more about Scottie Pippen? That shows what an absolute baby he was, an immature man. He signed a seven-year, $18 million contract in 1991 with the Chicago Bulls. He then outplayed his contract, and there was tremendous sympathy from Michael Jordan and Phil Jackson and other players, fans, unconscionable how underpaid he was in 1997-98. The sixth highest player on the Bulls during their sixth championship run. The 122nd highest paid player. I think those are the stats. Everyone's feeling sorry for him. And I'm watching last night thinking to myself, he is the reason I was the executive I was. Jerry Reinsdorf told me, Whenever you sign a player to a team-friendly deal, you never renegotiate that because you tell me the last time a player was willing to renegotiate his contract when he was underperforming. Tell me the last time a player was willing to give back money when he stunk. But when they're great, they want to renegotiate because they're underpaid. I follow that rule for the rest of my career. You sign a contract, that's your contract. Scottie Pippen was underpaid. Yeah, you know what? He was able to take care of his family, and that is what mattered to him. He got $18 million over those seven years, taking care of his family forever. Was he underpaid? Yes. But why did he take the deal? Did the team take advantage of him? Yes. We would take advantage of every player every moment we could. You think when the Atlanta Braves are signing their young kids to long-term deals, when any baseball team is signing these pre-arbitration deals, are they taking advantage of young players saying, hey, it's guaranteed. You might as well take the money. You'll be old. You'll be young enough to be a free agent in five, six, seven years, and you'll get paid more then. But meanwhile, your whole family will get taken care of. Do I feel like that's taking advantage of a kid? 
No, because we've missed as many times as we've succeeded. We've overpaid players even though they were young because they didn't turn out to be as great as we thought they'd be. And the other side of that risk is you end up being Jose Fernandez, where you turn down the money and then you don't earn any more money. Or you're Marcelo Zuna, where you turn down a long-term deal and after that you get one-year deals and you're in a one-year deal now and not getting paid. Scotty Pippen took a contract because it was right. Do I think Jerry Reinsdorf for one minute said to Scotty, hey, I wouldn't sign that if I were you. That is revisionist history. There is no chance. And I've had some stories with Jerry Reinsdorf and he's had to make public pronouncements saying he didn't remember. I don't remember telling David that it's better to finish in second place. Well, he did. It's not a big deal. He's going to say, of course he said it to Scottie Pippen. Where was the part of the documentary where Scottie Pippen said, yeah, Jerry told me not to sign it, but I signed it anyway. How do you not ask that question and edit that into the documentary? Where's the tweet from Scottie thanking Jerry, saying Jerry told me not to sign it, but I explained to Jerry I had a family to take care of. But instead, Scottie acted like a baby. And we find out last night, and I was never aware of this. And my knees buckled. The smoke came out of my ears. I started getting a temperature and having at least three COVID symptoms. When a normal day for me is only two, I had a third one watching. He delayed surgery as an FU to the Bulls because he was being underpaid. He delayed surgery so he can enjoy his summer. That's why they allowed swearing on ESPN so we could hear him drop an F-bomb. I think Jordan dropped a few F-bombs too. Scotty Pippen was willing to take time off. I think I just lost Wilson in that last cough if you're not watching. If you are watching, you don't see Wilson anymore. He fell behind me. Wilson, you're okay. Where are you? All right, he's back. I'm so worked up. Wilson, he delayed surgery. Why would you delay surgery? I'm talking to Wilson right now. Wilson's speechless. It is unconscionable. But he did. That was an epiphany and a terrible epiphany. All right, Jerry Krause. I want to talk about Jerry Krause for a minute because he's getting a lot of attention. Uh, I met Jerry Krause as a kid when I was heckling Jerry Krause. And uh, I told you the story of Jerry Reinsdorf and Jerry Krause and how Jerry Reinsdorf, when he first met me, talked to me about Jerry Krause. But after the Bulls, after I got into baseball, Jerry Krause, would, I would talk to him. And he and I had a phone relationship. And, and uh, his name is actually still in my phone. I, I don't know that... We, we would text and talk, and I just love to learn from him. A lot of negativity about Jerry Cross. Steve Curry couldn't get out of his own way. Scottie Pippen treating him so disrespectfully. Jordan making fun of his height. Really, Michael? Really? Making fun of someone's height? Yeah, you struck a nerve. Yes, it's like the game of operation when you put your tweezers right into my fibia, and then eh, the red light goes off. My red light went off. That's the best you got, Michael? You've got six rings, and you're saying Jerry Krause had nothing to do with it. You're going to criticize Jerry Krause for saying that organizations are helpful in winning titles. It's not just players and coaches alone. Jerry Krause gave you 
the story of the quote. And he was misquoted by people in the industry that I'm in. They didn't give you the full quote and he was pilloried. Jerry Krause was not a very personable guy. Jerry Reinsdorf called him one of the nicest guys and he loved people and wanted to be loved back. You could see the footage they edited to that story. They edited to that narrative by showing Jerry sort of hanging out, getting off team buses, hanging out in the team bus, hanging out in the locker room. Well, you could do an edit of me with my time in the Marlins and I would look like some sort of puppy. But that's not what I was like. You could do an edit of me saying that I was not at all friendly with players and never ever helped them or did anything to help them and always was business, never personal. <laughs> sometimes it was personal. Not on this show, but when you're running a team, sometimes it is personal. When I'm running a team, I had to make it business-like. What about Krause's relationship? Did you notice that Krause was a baseball scout and then become a basketball GM? And you're going to tell me that's not a talent? That's like a doctor who thinks he can be an investment manager. Or that's like a rock star who believes he can be an athlete or a movie star. Or a movie star believes he can be an athlete or a rock star. Or an athlete who believes he can be a movie star or a rock star. To be a baseball scout and then a basketball GM, not so easy. Very interesting. Reinsdorf gave him power, but don't think for a minute that Reinsdorf wasn't also involved in the decisions. You think that Reinsdorf alone let Jerry Krause decide that Phil Jackson was going to move on after 1997? You think Reinsdorf had no say in whether or not Jackson was going to come back for the sixth title run or whether or not Pippen was going to be traded? It is laughable. Of course he was involved. Of course he had a say. What do you do when you are the president of a team and you know that your GM and your manager hate each other? Well, I had that. We had a problem with Ozzie Gein, with Joe Girardi, Ozzie Gein too, but let's talk Joe Girardi. Larry Beinfest and Joe Girardi did not get along. If you ask Larry, he may tell you that or he may not. If you ask Joe Girardi, he may tell you that he may not. I think what Joe Girardi would tell you is that he was immature first time manager and he's grown a lot through his experience with the Yankees and now as a manager of the Phillies. The fact of the matter is it was very uncomfortable for me because I really had a problem with Joe as well. I didn't like the way he operated the team. I didn't like the way he operated, not managing. He always managed the game well. I didn't like everything else, anything outside of those three hours and seven minutes average game time. So the other 21 hours, I had a problem. And we had an owner who absolutely did not have a problem with Joe until he did. And that caused all the issues of firing him and then rehiring him and then firing him. But when you've got a GM and a coach who don't talk the way Phil Jackson told you he didn't talk, the only way that you are going to win a title the way they did is you have to have the GOAT. Any team would not survive it. The, and listen, the Golden State Warriors, the Miami Heat, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the New England Patriots. Choose a team. You can't have a GM and coach with that level of hatred. You cannot have that and win a World Series or an NBA championship unless you've got a talent on your team that so far surpasses anything else around. That's how good Jordan was. What about Krause's relationship with the players? First of all, the fact that Krause went a full season without talking to Jackson, it's, it's just, it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. His relationship with the players? Do a GM, this was what I thought about when running a team. Did it matter to me if our GM got along with every one of the players? No. Did it matter if I got along with every one of the players? No. 
Did it matter if the owner got along with every one of the players? Yes, that part mattered. We tried to hold out our owner and make sure that he got to do the good stuff, not the bad stuff, that he got to reunite Jose with his grandmother, that he got to tell Logan that he was going to, Logan Morrison, he was going to unretire his number, that he got to tell players when they were making the all-star teams, that he got to be there when players were signing big contracts, free agents, and we would take care of the negative stuff. That's what you do for your owners. That's what you do. Kraus had a job to do. It doesn't matter that he got along or didn't get along with players. His job is to build a team to win now and later. You can't win every year, but if you have an owner who doesn't let you rebuild, then you've got to make moves that make you win year after year. People are criticizing Jerry Krause now for the fact that once Jackson was gone, the teams won 15, 20 games, 30 games, finished in 15th or 16th place in the conference. Well, guess what? Who wasn't on the team? I'm trying to remember. Who wasn't on the team after the Bulls won their sixth title? I must be wrong. Coca, was Michael Jordan on the team in 1999? I'm just trying to remember. When the Knicks went to the finals against the Spurs, so the Knicks won the conference championship in 94 with no Jordan, and then again in 99. Do I have it wrong, Coca? I think Jordan may have been on that Bulls team in 99. I wonder why they didn't win. It must have been Krause's fault. Folks, he retired after the sixth title. He retired. That was rhetorical. That's why they won 15 games. Listen, I, um, I had a tough night last night. I did. Watching this, I thought it was an outstanding documentary. I can't wait for the last eight hours. I can't stand reliving some of the Nick moments, the Pippin dunk on Ewing, watching Oakley as a bull, watching Cartwright as a player and then as an assistant win rings. The jealousy was severe. I thought back to the moments where Jordan stuck it to us as a franchise, as a Knicks team and his fans. I thought about how fortunate Bulls fans are. And it made me think about how fortunate Patriot fans are or now Laker fans, Warrior fans. You get to see something and feel something and be a part of something that is so spectacular. The last dance. It was great. <sighs> okay. We'll do it again next Monday because episode three and four, I think it's the Robin episode for three. Robin is a perfect example of a player who you hate when he's not on your team. You love him when he is on your team. And when you are teammates or a GM and you've got a Rodman on your team, you've got to be on your game every day, every minute of every day, or else you've got unlimited service. I'm excited to see what that looks like. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. ML Beer Challenge. Yeah, I'm still going. It's day 36. Double high. Chai is 18, for those of you playing at home. It's fine. It's grown in. Given $1,000 a day to every baseball team. Now we've moved on to the basketball teams. We're going around. I did not get any correct answers to my question. 
why $1,000 was given to the Atlanta Hawks, Boys and Girls Club of Atlanta, why $1,000 was then given to the Cleveland Cavaliers. Well, here we go. Teams three, four, and five, the Detroit Pistons, the New York Knicks, and the Chicago Bulls. DM, tweet at me, David P. Sampson. Follow me at David P. Sampson, then DM me. And get in there and find out how it is, how it is that I did Detroit, New York, and then Chicago. So what I'm going to do is find an organization, maybe give it to the teams. New York needs all the help it can get. That is for sure. So does Detroit. So does Chicago. Great foundations. I was thinking about those three teams, the Pistons, Bulls, and Knicks. They were the teams really of my, the Pacers I never really thought of as a rival, even though we had great playoff series against the Pacers. I never viewed the Heat as a rival, even though we had great playoff series against the Miami Heat. It was always the Pistons we had to get through, and then the Bulls we had to get through. Never forget game five of the 1984 first round, winning on the road to win a best of five series, to lose to the Celtics in the second round, but that was one of the great road victories. It's hard to win on the road in the NBA. The thing I want to do about the ML Beard Challenge is I want to tell stories about each city. We've spoken about New York. I've given you stories about the Bartman game. I'm going to come back to it because I don't want to let this show end. And I will come back to all stories. It could be at the end of the month pod. If you go in to Apple and give me five stars and then tell a friend and then review, please do all those things. Do a review and ask a question. You can ask me for my top Chicago story, Detroit story, New York story. There's a few you haven't heard, a quite a few. But I want to talk about this NFL mock draft that's coming, and I'm just going to mention a few things about it. And what's happening is that this week, starting on the 23rd, which I believe is Thursday, there will be a virtual draft. And this draft is going to happen, as you know. Roger Goodell is in his home leading the draft. Then all 32 teams... Will And there are 32. None of them will be together, supposedly. They're all apart. They're all Zooming. There's a ton of technology. And that is how the draft is going to go. And we talked a lot about dress rehearsals and mock drafts. So a mock draft, we did it on Nothing Personal, is what all the networks are doing. We did it with CBS. There's one today. I think it's mock draft 5.0 or 4.0 on CBS Sports HQ. And the real one starts. What we're hearing today, there is a dress rehearsal going on, which means they're going through. Do you remember how funny it was when we had a dress rehearsal? By the way, if you're looking for the funniest video ever recorded about what's going on with the NFL draft, go to Chris Hassel. He is uh, a great follow on Twitter. He is a straight Iowa guy who I'm lucky enough to work with. And he, along with the CBS Sports social team put together a video that has one actor in it and his name is Chris Hassel playing the part of 10 different people and he goes through some of the issues that could happen as a matter of fact I have a wait to see about what will happen that there will be a timeout for technological issues it turns out that Adam Schefter who my guess and this is something I've not said yet I believe deep down There will be members of the media on this draft, somehow getting information before anybody else, somehow finding a way to Zoom bomb. So Adam Schefter came out today and said that he got a text from a participant 
in the NFL mock draft that just started saying that it's already had a technical glitch and that was only with the first pick. I have been very vociferous in my calling for this draft not to happen this way. It's great for HQ. It's great for ESPN. It's great for NFL Network. I'm good. I understand we need content. The problem is it is tone deaf to me. And now we have a chance to have it actually not happen properly, which could impact the competitive nature of the draft. There's been conversations that they're going to be able to stop the clock to engage in offline trade conversations. Trades are part of what you need in the NFL draft or the NBA draft in order to do your best. GMs and scouts, their jobs, team presidents, their jobs, head coaches, their jobs, players, their jobs depend on the draft in the NFL. It's not like the MLB draft. I love the MLB draft and I want to make it a huge event. But guess what? It takes years to find out whether I'm right or I'm wrong. In the NFL, it's that year. In the NBA, it's that year. It's this year now. These players drafted are being counted on to come to camp in July, which I told you is going to be delayed. Wait to see. To play in the 2020 regular season, which may or may not happen, believe it or not. And if it does happen, will definitely happen without fans. I don't know if I've made that a wait to see, but I could. This draft matters. You cannot afford any sort of technical glitch. You can't afford the ability to lose the ability for teams to be in communication properly. You can't lose the ability for teams to be in the same room. They've got to be able to get it right. If you've got to delay it until social distancing measures are eased, until there is testing, you delay it. What's the downside of a technical, technical glitch? What's the downside of having trades not be able to properly happen? Well, you could argue, and people have been arguing nonstop to me because I've been having this debate with people on Zoom virtually. I've been having this debate that what's the difference? We've got to give people content. That's why the last dance was moved up from June. Give people content. No, it's not about giving people content, actually. It's about the fact that ESPN's numbers were about half of what they were last year at this time. It's the fact that cable companies, networks, Teams, they are losing money hand over fist and they've got to find a way to recapture it. If I were the NFL, I would need this draft because I need the NFL network to have it. I need ESPN to get ratings. I need CBS to get people watching and clicking and monitoring all the mock drafts and the fantasy advice and all the other things. I need people gambling. Can you imagine people are gambling in record number on who the first or second pick is? You don't think that is absolutely absurd? The gambling sports books need business. The downside is if you get it wrong, not only are you costing people jobs, but in the long term, you're costing teams their ability to compete. I don't want that. And I'm not being a sour guy. And I'm not being a naysayer saying, oh, coronavirus, shut everything down forever. All I've been saying is we need testing. We will get back to a new normal when it's safe to do it. There are certain things that can go on. Is the NFL draft essential part of business today? No, sports is not essential today. It's not, no matter what we feel emotionally, it is not an essential business today. Get to me when we fully flatten the curve and figured out some damn testing. Why can't I get a test? Because I'm asymptomatic. 
I feel like I have symptoms. Why can't I get a test? Because I'm not going to take a test away from people who definitely need it because they are in essential work jobs, going to work every day. I'm here in the apartment studio. I'm not going to waste a test no matter how sick I get. No matter if I have to call 911 when I go to the hospital and need a ventilator because I have fever of 103, hot-blooded, check it and see, with a sore throat, shortness of breath. What's the difference if I have it or not? Difference is I'm sick, I'm going to the hospital. If I'm sick, I have a flu, I won't do a show. Or maybe I will still do a show. How do you know that I don't have it right now? I can't give it to anyone. How do you know that I didn't agree to keep doing this show even though I feel like crap? What's the worst that happens if I do a show and there's a technical glitch or a technological problem or all of a sudden I drop the microphone fall over the court or Wilson falls down? What's the downside? Downside is I have a 35-minute show that no one downloads or listens to or watches on YouTube or on the CBS Sports subscription channel. I'm not saving lives here. I'm not curing cancer. I'm not splitting the atom. You're going to hear a lot more in the coming days about these technological glitches. I can promise you that. All right. I promise you also that I make mistakes. I'm human. I have made so many mistakes in my life, personally, professionally. It's hard to correct everyone. But on this show, I promised that I will correct any mistakes that either Coca catches, but he's asleep at the switch in the year. I haven't heard one word from him all show. I think he mentioned that Jordan retired in 99, not realizing that was a rhetorical question. I got a few things wrong. Thank you for you DMing. I got one of them actually on Instagram, which is also David P. Sampson. I don't really post a lot of photos. Sometimes I do. But here's the two of them. Number one, when I reviewed Rain Man, I refued, referred to Dustin Hoffman, the Academy Award winning actor in Rain Man, that he played an, a, an autistic person, that he, that he had autism. And I got a tweet saying from a listener of nothing personal, thank you. He works with people with autism in Arkansas, and he asked me to make the correction on behalf of all the great people with whom he works every day. And the correction is, it is someone, a person with autism, not an autistic person or an autistic people. They're all different types of autism. Dustin Hoffman was a person with autism. Thank you. Second correction, I told you that Danny Meyer founded Shake Shack and he was a Yelly. I met him through Yale, but Danny Meyer is not a Yelly. He went to Trinity undergrad. That was a correction. Thank you. He went to Trinity, not Yale. Wait to seize is when I'm held accountable, and I am held, ac held accountable when I'm right, when I'm wrong. I told you in early March, wait to see Tiger Woods will skip the Olympics even if he qualifies. Guess what? That's an N.A., not applicable, no Olympics. That wait to see is not right, it's not wrong, it's done. My wait to see for today is about the last dance. Unlike the XFL, next weekend, the ratings for the last dance will increase in week two, not decrease. And ESPN and everyone else will smile. They'll look at Michael and they'll say, Mikey, Mike, Michael, it's just business. It's nothing personal.
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.